0: Chapter One, Part One, of the Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Herskovitz Nagami. Brown Book of the Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter One The Path to Power, Part One. The German Labour Party was founded in Munich in January 1919. In July of that year, Adolf Hitler, at that time education officer in the Reichswehr, joined this party. He was the seventh member of what later developed into the National Socialist German Labour Party. Who were the founders and first members of this party? From what sections of the population did they come and what interests did they represent? In the first place, they consisted of soldiers and officers who had come back from the war completely disillusioned. For four years, they had honestly believed in the chauvinistic slogans with which they had been fed. They had staked their lives in the struggle for a greater Germany. They believed in the legend that pacifist and social democratic traitors had stabbed the German army in the back And brought about its defeat. These men who came back were deeply embittered by what they thought was the weakness of the ruling class, the treachery and flight of the Kaiser and of the deposed princes, and the failure of the generals of the great war to strike down the November criminals. These deeply disillusioned soldiers and officers could no longer find a place for themselves in civil life. To a great extent, the professions which they had once practiced now no longer existed. This was true particularly of the professional soldiers, military cadets, and a number of categories of officials. They were joined by members of the uprooted nobility, students who had been torn from their studies by the war, and declassed and radicalized members of the middle classes, who now began to feel the ground giving way under their feet. All of these elements, who at that time also flocked into the many other military bodies which arose at that time, the Einwohnerwehr, the Stahlhelm, and the Erhardt Brigade, formed the first basis of the Young National Socialist German Labour Association, as the party first called itself officially. For two years after its formation, the National Socialists were quite an insignificant group. The November Revolution of 1918 had been beaten down, and the capitalist system had got a new lease of life. The Social Democrat, Friedrich Ebert, became the first president of the Weimar Republic. The old forces of finance capitalism consolidated their rule again. The trade union leaders had concluded an agreement with the employers based on negotiations in November 1918 between Ugo Stinnes and the president of the General Committee of the Trade Unions, the Social Democrat Karl Le Guin. What at that time could Hitler do for the leading groups of German capitalists? At that period, they were not yet in need of the National Socialists. Hitler's association therefore remained without any significance— He himself continued in the service of the Reichswehr until April 1920, giving political lectures to the soldiers. On instructions from the Reichswehr, he also observed political organizations and meetings, bringing in reports and information. This was how Hitler first came into contact with the German Labour Party. Not long afterwards, the political importance of the party began to grow the political situation in Germany began to change rapidly under the effect of the dictated peace of Versailles and the losses of the war. Milliards of marks were demanded in reparations and had to be paid. Important industrial areas were lopped off. Alsace-Lorraine, Upper Silesia, the Tsar Territory, Posen and West Prussia, the so-called Polish Corridor, Danzig and eugen Malmedy. The German market was still further restricted by the loss of a considerable portion of its European and overseas connections in addition to the German colonies. The cost of demobilization and of putting the war industries onto a peace basis was a terrific burden on the smaller taxpayers, as the dominant circles of German monopoly capital were continuously devising new methods of transferring the reparations payments— and all other losses onto the shoulders of the workers and the middle class. This development reached its highest point in the inflation which had begun during the war, but was only widely felt among the population in the course of 1921 and 1922. In the autumn of 1923, it reached the point of catastrophe. It had brought about still further impoverishment of the workers, and had transformed a considerable section of the middle classes into proletarians. Millions of the poorer sections of the middle class were literally robbed of everything they had by the inflation. The state paid the banks and heavy industry concerns 600 million gold marks as compensation for the occupation of the Ruhr by the French, and these concerns also made enormous profits. The economic chaos produced far-reaching political disturbances. Erzberger and Rathenau fell victims to the bullets of nationalist murderers. Among the working class, a process of radicalization was taking place. The Spartacus struggles in Berlin in January 1919 were followed by the rising of the workers in the Ruhr during the Kottputsch of March 1920, and the Workers' Revolt in March 1921. The workers began to leave the social democratic organizations, making their way first to the independent social democrats, then, after the autumn of 1920, to the Communist Party. Great demonstrations culminated in the Hamburg Rising of October 1923. The 25 Points of the Nazi Programme In 1920, the National Socialist German Labour Party first began to develop importance. In February of that year, Hitler himself, at a meeting in Munich, put forward the program of the party, the so-called 25 points. These are a hash of theses and demands, which in parts are self-contradictory the political practice of the Nazi Party has at no time followed the principles laid down in the 25 points, nor did it matter to Hitler and his vassals that at the end of the program the following passage occurs. The leaders of the party undertake, if necessary at the risk of their own lives, to work unceasingly for the carrying through of the points enumerated above. This was not the only promise which the Nazi leaders gave and failed to keep. In a general meeting of the party in May 1926, a resolution was once again adopted stressing the unalterable character of the party's program. Gottfried Feder, the joint author of the 25 points and theoretician of the party, in his commentary on the program laid stress on the fact that, there must be no tampering with the basis and fundamental conceptions of this program. There must be no twisting and turning on any opportunistic grounds. There must be no hide and seek with the present state, economic, and social order of things. And there must be no weakening of our principles. Those who, in the Jewish question, in our fight against high finance, against the Dawes Pact and the policy of impoverishing Germany, or in any other questions on our program, cannot see eye to eye with the irrevocable aims and methods which we have laid down, those who believe that the freedom of the German nation can be bought through the League of Nations or Locarno by compromise and cowardice, such people need have nothing to do with us, let them remain outside of our party. But all these magnificent words cannot hide the fact that the national socialist leaders have repeatedly repudiated and betrayed their own half-hearted and compromising program. Their treachery to their program begins with the first two points. Point one, the union of all Germans on the basis of the right of self-determination of peoples to form a greater Germany. Point two, the equal right of the German nation with all other nations and the cancellation of the peace treaties of Versailles and Saint-Germain. Neither of these two points in his program prevented Hitler, both before and after his seizure of power, from concluding compromises with the signatories of the Versailles Treaty and sending envoys to negotiate with the League of Nations, France, Poland, England, and Italy. Nor did either of these points make him hesitate to betray the South Tyrol to Mussolini. In the first edition of Feder's commentary on the program, the following passage occurs. We shall not give up a single German in South Germany, in Alsace-Lorraine, in the South Tyrol, in Poland, in Austria, the colony of the League of Nations and the succession states of what was formerly Austria. In the second and all later editions, the words in the South Tyrol were omitted. It may be noted in passing that in his foreword to the fifth edition, Feder remarks, The only alterations which have been made are in the case of a few stylistic expressions and passages which might have led to misunderstanding. It is the same with other points of the program, particularly the demands of an economic and social character, such as the abolition of income derived without labor and effort, abolition of the dominion of interest, point eleven, the complete confiscation of all war profits, point twelve the taking over by the state of all concerns which have already been trustified, point 13, participation in the profits of large concerns, point 14, a considerable extension of provision for old age, point 15, the creation and maintenance of a healthy middle class, the immediate municipalization of the large stores and the leasing of them at low prices to small tradespeople, Close control of all small tradespeople in their sales to the Reich, to the constituent states of the Reich, or to the local authorities. Point sixteen. Land reform suited to our national needs, the establishment of legislation to provide for expropriation of land without compensation where required for public purposes, abolition of the land tax, and measures to prevent speculation in land. Point seventeen. It is not necessary to examine each of these points in the program in detail. Some of them will be dealt with in later chapters, as, for example, the points relating to the Jewish question, points 4 through 8 and 23. At this stage, we are concerned only with indicating the general basis of the National Socialist Program and with showing how the leaders of the National Socialist Party have unscrupulously betrayed their own program. The demands themselves are in part reactionary lower-middle-class demands, as, for example, the creation and maintenance of a healthy middle class. Here, too, we have half-heartedness and contradiction, such as is characteristic of the program throughout. For how is the middle class to be maintained if the capitalist economic system, which necessarily destroys the middle class and brings them into the ranks of the working class, is also to be maintained? This is also true of the point dealing with agrarian policy. How can Hitler save the peasantry if he maintains private property intact, if he repudiates any expropriation of the big landlords in favor of the landless peasant? In April 1928, Hitler expressly stated that the National Socialist Party was determined to protect the private ownership of the means of production with all the strength it could command. In an explanation of the phrase expropriation without compensation in point 17 of his program, he stated that this only referred to legislation authorizing the expropriation where necessary of land which was not being properly used from the standpoint of the welfare of the people, and that this passage was in the first place directed against Jewish land speculation companies. On the other hand, the National Socialist Program also contained demands which had previously been the stock and trade of liberal parties, and also demands embodied in the Weimar Constitution. Point 13, the taking over of the trusts by the state, is stolen straight out of the program of the German Democratic Party of 1919. Other points are unfulfilled promises made in the Weimar Constitution. Examples of this are point 15, Extension of Provision for Old Age, point 20. Full Opportunities for Ability. Compare with the Constitution and the Welfare Act of 1924, point 21. Improvement of the Health of the People and Protection for Mother and Child, and point 24. Public Service before Private Interest. Compare paragraph 156 of the Constitution. The Growth of the Nazi Movement. Hitler appeared in the first great meetings organized by the Nationalist Socialist Party to put forward this program. At that period, the agitation against the Versailles Treaty was put in the forefront of the Nazi agitation. The more the middle class was affected by the continuous inflation, the more popular the Nazi demonstrations became. It cannot, however, be disputed that in the middle class, It was not only the material losses they suffered through reparations, inflation, and the occupation of the Ruhr, which affected their outlook, but also the blow to national sentiment, which was inflicted by the dictated peace of Versailles and the entry of French troops into German territory. In February 1921, soon after the reparations negotiations, A great National Socialist demonstration was held in Munich with the slogan, Germany's Future or Extinction. For the first time, motors carrying swastika flags passed through the streets of Munich advertising the demonstration. Posters were put up everywhere with the demagogic text. If 60 million Germans, young and old, declare their united determination, we will not pay then the will of these millions will at least secure the respect which is not given to those who kiss the lash which whips them. We are men, not dogs. The 60 million Germans must tell the government clearly that whoever negotiates will be overthrown. This demonstration was a great success for Hitler. The national parties and associations which had been using old pre-war methods of propaganda ridiculed the young man when he came to them proposing the organization of giant demonstrations against the government's policy of fulfillment, and still more when on their refusal he himself undertook the task with his own tiny party. But the program of the nationalist parties, which was that of the Junkers and big capitalists, was not suitable for the middle classes, who, however, were carried away by the twenty-five points And Hitler's unscrupulous agitation. The failure of the Kapp putsch had shown the weakness of the Junkers. The putsch was based on the support of the big landlords and parts of the Reichswehr and the higher grades of the civil service, besides a few military groups. But it was completely out of touch with the discontent in the middle class. It was therefore beaten by the working class within 24 hours. The Stahlhelm, too, could never win more than a very limited influence, chiefly among peasant and urban youth and the most backward sections of the workers, members of the yellow unions and agricultural laborers. But the National Socialists were different. They put forward their imaginary fight against international Jewish banking and speculative capital in their slogan of the National Union— in which all sections of the population would live at peace with each other under a strong state, and with this program they were able to penetrate widely different groups, including large numbers of the middle class. In 1921, the membership of the National Socialist Party grew from 3,000 to 6,000, but its sphere of influence at that time was almost exclusively limited to Bavaria. In North Germany, the movements under Grefe, Wülle, Henning, and Count Reventlow were very much stronger. In 1920, the first Congress of the National Socialist Party was held in Salzburg. This Congress was attended by members of the Austrian National Socialist Party, which dated from before the war. It had been formed in 1904 as a German Labour Party, and in May 1918, This joined with other groups to form the National Socialist Party of Austria. National Socialism dates, therefore, from the early years of the century. It developed first in Bohemia, where the national question played a particularly important role. Hitler, an Austrian by birth, had taken a great deal from their program, but he was unable to reach an agreement at Salzburg with Jung the leader of the Bohemian Party. The next Congress was held at Reichenhall in 1921. This Congress was held jointly with Russian and Ukrainian White Guard associations. Hetman Skoropadsky was among the speakers, in conjunction with the National Socialist Alfred Rosenberg, whose family came from the Baltic provinces and who later became editor of the völkischer Beobachter, and Nazi expert in foreign politics. The White Guard emigrants developed their plans of intervention against the Soviet state, which had just driven out the last of the troops of intervention. Already at that period, Rosenberg had developed connections with Dederding and the German industrial employer Rechtberg, both of them violently hostile to the Soviet Union. It is interesting to note that in the Fulkischer Beobachter Rosenberg writes his first anti-Bolshevik articles, which were pro-Polish. In a manifesto issued in connection with the Congress of the party in Munich in January 1922, Hitler, who had still to win his position as sole dictator of the Nazi party, stated that it was necessary to purge the movement, as it had become a breeding ground for well-meaning fools, who were all the more dangerous because of their good intentions. This was evidently directed against the other founders of the party, including Anton Drexler and Körner, who were not prepared to follow Hitler in his new and unscrupulous methods. High and influential officers in the Reichswehr at Munich had for a considerable time given support to the movement, Among them were some of Hitler's former colleagues of 1919 and 1920. With their help, he set up, alongside of the party organization proper and the press and propaganda department, a third organization, which in the following years and later on served as his main fighting weapon, the Storm Troops. In the summer of 1920, the National Socialist Party, under the pretext of protecting their meetings against attacks by the Reds, had set up what they called a corps for maintaining order. But this was too small and weak for Hitler, who in August 1921 set up his own protective organization, the Storm Troops. These formed the terrorist section of the National Socialist Party and were brought directly under the political leadership of the party. Who Financed Hitler? Not long after this period, a number of capitalists, particularly in South Germany, began to take an interest in Hitler and the National Socialist Party, with a view to drawing them in to support their own reactionary politics. They realized the value of the National Socialist Movement as a weapon against the militant sections of the working class, and they were therefore prepared to support the Nazis, particularly with finance. In the hitler ludendorff trial of 1924, it was proved that Hitler had received considerable sums of money for his party from Aust, the director of the Bavarian Employers' Association. Beckstein, the piano manufacturer, Mafei, an industrial employer in Munich, and Hornschuh of Kulmbach, and Grandl of Augsburg, two manufacturers. Hitler also gave lectures on his aims in the select clubs of bankers, landlords, and big employers of labor. In return, he received contributions in support of the National Socialist Press and for similar purposes. Hitler also received subsidies from Borsig, a large industrial employer of Berlin. Who was chairman of the Union of German Employers Associations. An agent of Hitler's in Switzerland, Dr. Gausser, is also said to have secured for Hitler finance from Henry Ford and also from French capitalist groups who were speculating on the Bavarian separatist movement. It is probable that the full sources of Hitler's finance will only become known when the archives come into the hands of the German workers. But political proof of the source of his finance is already clear. The whole policy of the National Socialist Party and the declarations of sympathy for it made by important capitalist groups such as Thyssen and Schacht are proof of the great interest necessarily taken in the Hitler movement by the ruling class. Hitler's debts and the immense expenditure on propaganda and for the maintenance of the storm troops were factors which played a certain role in bringing him into action in 1923. The Putsch of November 9, 1923. The Munich Putsch of November 9, 1923, was the highest point and also the end of the first upward movement of the National Socialist Party. All through 1923, Hitler had been urging his allies in the Bavarian government and the Reichswehr to take action. Early in November, he mobilized the fighting associations and, in a great demonstration of patriotic associations in Munich, announced the formation of the National Republic. He announced the deposition of Ebert, appointed himself chancellor, Carr, his vice consul for Bavaria, Pöner, the chief of the Munich police prime minister, and Ludendorff, Minister of the Reichswehr. The Bavarian ministers were arrested but released by Ludendorff a few hours later on parole. At first, Kahr supported Hitler's proposals, but in the evening went with General von Loso and General Seisser to the barracks of the 19th Infantry Regiment, from which they declared in a broadcast that they repudiated the Hitler Putsch. Carr stated that his consent had been obtained from him by the threat of force. He also announced the compulsory liquidation of the National Socialist German Labour Party, as well as the fighting associations Oberland and Reichsflage. This report and the order for the dissolution of these organizations was published in the Munich Papers on November 9. Hitler and Ludendorff made a despairing effort to take power, although Hitler had given his word of honor a few months earlier to the Bavarian Minister of the Interior that he would not make any attempt at a putsch. They marched with their fighting organizations through the streets. The Reichswehr maintained an attitude of neutrality. It would not fire on the marching troops. Bavarian police awaited Hitler's approach in one of the public buildings. The police fired one volley. Fifteen of the Hitlerites fell dead. Hitler himself fled and was arrested in the villa of a princess before he was able to cross the Austrian frontier. Göring fled to Italy and later to Sweden. Ludendorff was not arrested. The trial of the Putschists of November 9th took place in the spring of 1924. The judges were merciful and sympathetic, for the accused were nationally minded people who had acted with the best intentions. The accused were Hitler, Field Marshal von Ludendorff, Frick, a police official who was to become Minister of the Interior in 1933, Captain Ruhm, Lieutenant Pernet, Ludendorff's stepson, and a few others. Nazi historians record that the accused were in cheerful mood and were smiling and cracking jokes. Hitler was sentenced to five years' detention in a fortress, subject to to being released on parole when he had served a portion of the sentence. A few months later, in December 1924, he was released from the Landsberg Fortress. Röhm, Frick, and Bruckner got away with only three months' detention. Ludendorff was released without punishment on the ground that he had been carried away in the excitement of the moment. Hitler, then still an Austrian citizen, was not expelled but was allowed to continue to reside in Germany. The Nazis disappear from the scene. The failure of the 1923 Putsch formed the close of the insurrectionary period of the Hitler movement. The time of plans for armed uprisings against the Jewish government in Berlin had now passed. The German economic situation had reached a certain stability and the position of the middle class was improving. Hence, for some years, the National Socialist Party virtually disappeared from the scene. The United Peoples and National Socialist Parties, which in the Reichstag elections of May 1924 had obtained 1,900,000 votes and 32 seats, in December of that year secured only 840,000 votes and 14 seats. They sank down among the splinter parties, while the German nationals secured over 100 and the Social Democrats 120 seats. The following years were marked by internal struggles within the nationalist and national socialist parties. In the summer of 1925, the German People's Freedom Party split, and a large section of its former supporters went over to Hitler. In the meanwhile, the employers continued to take back from the workers the concessions they had won in 1918. In January 1925, a government was formed of the reactionary parties under the leadership of the German nationalists. Three months later, Field Marshal von Hindenburg was elected by the combined forces of the right to succeed Ebert as president of the Reich. The National Socialists, who in the first ballot had supported the hopeless candidature of Ludendorff, in the second ballot voted for Hindenburg. This was the beginning of the transformation of the National Socialist Movement. The Nazis Support the Princes In 1926, in connection with the referendum for the expropriation of the princes, the National Socialists joined the chorus of all the reactionary parties, from the German Nationalists to the Center and the Democrats, in shouting, the expropriation of the princes is robbery of well-earned wealth. Moreover, the Nazis have never changed their line in connection with this question. The leader of the Nazi fraction in the Reichstag declared in connection with a communist motion for the expropriation of the princes and the discontinuance of payments to the Kaiser and the nobility, a sense of justice makes us reject the communist motion for the expropriation of the princes— German socialism must also recognize the rights of the Hohenzollerns. The German princes and former nobility have rewarded the Nazis for this attitude by putting millions of their compensation money at the disposal of the Nazis. We refer particularly to Prince August Wilhelm, son of the ex-Kaiser, Duke Karl Eduard of Saxe-Kobern-Gotha, Prince Wilhelm von Hessen, whom Göring appointed president of Hesse-Nassau in 1933, Prince Christian of schaumburg lippe and recently the former crown prince has joined the Motor Corps of the Nazis. The National Socialists have not been in a position to deny that the ex-Kaiser Wilhelm II has also helped in the financing of the storm troops. Hitler then tried the policy of drawing closer to the reactionary parties in order to win back the confidence of the capitalists, which he had lost through the Munich Putsch. He attempted to win legal positions because he realized that this was the only way to win the favor and support of the ruling class. Once again, he began lecturing in the employers' clubs in order to persuade the big capitalists that his ideas were not at all dangerous, and to explain to them how much better they could work with the national socialists than with the unpatriotic Social Democrats. But now the leader did not restrict his activities to South Germany. He went to the western areas to find the industrial barons in their citadels. In 1926, he spoke twice to specially invited audiences in Essen and Königswinter, and again in 1927 at the Krupp Hall in Essen. The organ of heavy industry, The Rheinisch-Westfälische Zeitung records the applause with which Hitler's remarks were greeted. End of chapter 1, part 1.